0: We're going to conclude our series today, Knowing the Times, began all the way back in chapter 24 of Isaiah, and now we are here in chapter 35. Let's hear the Word of God together. It's amazing when you listen to this. This is a glorious text, and yet it's in a sense just kind of of the foothills of just Majestic peaks. They're going to open up in the chapters 40 through 66 of Isaiah, but we get a glimpse of it here. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands. And make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, and the recomp- with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they're fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of the Lord. And we pray for the water of your Spirit, Lord, to work on our dry souls now as we hear this good word. In Jesus alone we pray. Amen. There was a a German thinker and the early 20th century, named Joseph Pieper, who in 1934 wrote a sentence in one of his books that I'm going to just, I'm going to paraphrase it here. He said, it'd be hard to think of a statement that goes as deeply into the very core of our existence as this statement. It'd be hard to think of a statement that gets into the core of our creaturely existence more than this statement, and here it is. That we find ourselves to the very, up until the very moment of our death, we find ourselves in the state of being on the way. You and I find ourselves until the moment of our death in the state of being on the way. Now, I just want to meditate a little bit on that. We're in transit. We are journeying. Now, you'll notice what are saying, that's not just something we do. I mean, obviously, unless you intend to sleep here tonight, in a few minutes, you'll be on the way back home. But he's not saying that being on the way, you know, we just happen to be kind of mobile creatures who move around. You know, we do. We do move around in the world. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying that being on the way is actually at the core of what we are. To exist as a human being, even if you're not moving at all, to exist as a human being is to be on the way. That is fundamental to what we are as creatures, and what are we on the way? What does it mean that we're on the way? We are on the way from what is, you know, there's, there's, there's what is, behind us is what is not, and we are now living in what is, but we are always on the way to what is not yet, but could be. That's just, you can't be a human being and not be that kind of being. You're on the way from what is to what could be what is not yet. Now you can feel this, you know, as you even just think about your own bodies. Bodies, I, I, This is growing things increasingly amaze me. Biologically even, you know, you and I, from the moment we are conceived, we are something inside of us, not because we choose to be this way, it's just how we are. We are compelled to become. And if at any point in that becoming physically, biologically, something cuts it short, you really feel it as a tremendous loss. I mean, if if the one part of my body that never became was my left arm, and I still had the kind of little baby arm that I had in the womb standing up here in front of you today, there would be a sense looking at me that something went wrong, that what was not yet just turned out not to be and that was a real loss because something in our very being physically impels you don't even need to choose it you in fact you sometimes i remember you know putting almost want to put bricks on my kid's head just stop growing and there's no way to stop it it just happens you know this becoming at, at the biological level but it isn't just bio, biology is it you, you know that you look at any part of human life and you can see the same thing our emotional lives our social lives you know, kind of broader social institutions. Listen to the language that we use. We are animated by the not yet of improvement, always trying to improve. You hear words like growth, you hear words like development. You know, there's no such thing as a good organization that doesn't have a sort of development plan. You definitely, in our time, hear the word progress. This is all language of being on the way, of what is not yet. And, and Joseph Pieper has an absolutely beautiful phrase he uses to describe this. He says it's a, cora- a courageous unrest. There is in human beings this courageous unrest that no matter how much you might try to even fight it off, there just burns inside of us as, as human creatures. This orientation... To what is not yet but it could be and in some cases we even feel strongly it should be and this courageous unrest inside of us it just insistently beckons us to step out toward that that's just being human now the technical term for what I'm describing here is hope that's what this is hope you you know of course hope can fasten on to false hopes There are things that pretend to be not yet, not yet, but it'll come, but then what you actually find out in the end is it's not to be, and perhaps even could not ever be, and that's a false hope. But the alternative to hope, as any of you who have experienced this know painfully, the alternative to hope is despair. If you reach a place in your life when you begin to be convinced there is no not yet, there is only not to be then you know what despair is. And you know that can actually be fatal. That crushing realization that what I'd hoped was just not yet will never be. That's despair. And part of the work of the Bible is to give to us as God's people in the darkest, most seemingly hopeless times, what the Bible calls full assurance of hope to stir—basically what the Bible does is it is showing to our faith what will be, when to our eyes it's still not yet. That's what the Bible is constantly doing, to give us full assurance of hope, to show to our eyes of faith what will be, what is not yet but will be, when our eyes, it's just all not yet. And and you actually wonder sometimes if it will ever be. And that's where we are, of course, in this end of the series. Isaiah has finished his preaching series here with a—he's finishing it with a message of hope— Judah, as we've talked many times, they're in a very dark time. They're, they're being uh, under siege by Assyria. And, and with all that going on and with all that's going to occur over the next number of centuries, because it's not just Assyria, but then there's going to be Babylon and more misery beyond that. But in all of that darkness, Isaiah looks to the future and he sets before God's people these two very vivid images I want to talk about just for a few minutes, images of hope. You'll notice there's water and there's a way. And I just want to talk about those a little bit and think about hope. The water and the way. Now, the the obvious word picture early on is is the water. Um, You see there, there's, you guys ever feel dry? (laughs) You know, the the Bible uses these word pictures and you kind of have to sort of connect them to your real life. There are times when it just feels as if life is just kind of burning sand. Your vitality is kind of sapped. You just feel dull. You feel heavy. It's just hard to have any sense of energy. Things can feel just excruciatingly painful, in fact. And there's just kind of a sense of wilderness. You know, like there's, I'm just in howling winds and I'm sad and, you know, those sorts of things. Well, you know, Judah's in, in, a, in a wilderness time. And, and what, God, what Isaiah shows them as they look to the future, of course, it's pretty obvious in the text, is th- these deserts these places where people are being oppressed and they're being attacked and there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of anxiety and it's just a desert experience, there's going to come a time, as Isaiah looks to the future, where this desert is gonna become a watered land. The desert's gonna rejoice and blossom. And then over in verse six, you see it again, waters are gonna break forth in those dry, parched wilderness, streams in the desert, the burning sand is gonna become a pool. Now, what's he talking about here? What, what's he actually looking forward to when he sees the water? Well, this, of course, is not just ecological, though I think there, there might be something there. What, what, what's coming? What's the water? It's God, right? He says in verse, uh, verses 2 and 3, God is going to come. And when God comes, it's what we call his kingdom. What, what do we mean by that? When God comes and he takes charge of things and he begins to exercise his power and his wisdom and his love and begins to just change things, what begins to happen when God does that is that there be, there, it's like there's water flooding into the wastelands where things you couldn't live here. You can't flourish here. <laughs> I'm gonna die here. There's like nothing here to, to, to give any joy or any, or any goodness. When God comes, water just rushes into that waste. He gives life where there is death. He, you notice what he says in, in verse 5. He gives healing to broken things. This is part of what it looks like when the water of God comes. Things that are not suddenly are. Blind eyes can see. Deaf ears can hear. Lame people are leaping like deer. The mute are singing. That's God's going to come. God is the water who brings life and refreshment and healing. Well, now, this is clearly from Isaiah's standpoint. It's not yet. So when does this come? When did God send the water? When, when, will, this, when will this arrive? Well, you know the history, of course, after Isaiah. And you know that there was a time after the Assyrian siege, where eventually then Syria was overcome by Babylon, and Babylon destroyed Jerusalem and took Israel away in captivity. And there was a long, long 70-year captivity, but then there came a time, of course, when God turned that back. And, you know, we're sitting here in 2020. It's kind of hard to imagine this, but, you know, this was a nation that basically thought they were finished. The only thing that kept them for those 70 years was a promise. God said, you'll go home someday, they have zero ability to make that happen. But eventually, God, through a king named Cyrus, sends his people back home, and they get to come home. And that was water in the desert. God's people looked like they were just going to be scattered among the nations. They were never going to enjoy their land or all the good things they they enjoyed in their land, and yet God brings them back home, a tremendous time of watering. But it, it didn't really bring... It didn't bring all that God had promised to Abraham. They were still, in many ways, in kind of a political captivity, and that continued for centuries. And so the, the real water, of course, and some of you are already getting there, the real water is the, the, the kingdom of God that's going to come with Messiah. It's what we're celebrating in this Advent season. Jesus is going to come, and you actually even saw some of this. The reason why Jesus did healing uh, miracles, like opening blind eyes and unstopping deaf ears, was to show the water's here. The waters come, the kingdom of God is among you, he said. This is what God does when he reigns. And so now you and I today, since Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, we're living in his kingdom and the waters in the world and Jesus rules and the spirit is working. But you know that we're still sitting here in 2020. And even from where we're sitting today, what, almost 3,000 years after Isaiah, there's still a lot of Jesus' kingdom that we're waiting for. There's water in the world. Our our sitting here today is evidence of that, but God, the water of the kingdom still has a lot to do to make the waste places of the world fresh and the fullness of all that Jesus is going to do, all that God's gonna do through the power of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of all that is still, we're awaiting that fullness. It'll be cosmic in scope. And I want you to remember as you think about the water that's, that's here now and still coming, The biblical images of Jesus' kingdom, Messiah's kingdom, they are not that when Messiah reigns, things are going to get drier and drier and drier and drier and drier and drier drier until he suddenly comes back and there's this cataclysmic deluge of water at the end of history. There are a lot of people in in, in evangelical churches today, that's what they, they basically say. You just expect dryness and more dryness and worse dryness and you know, kind of apocalyptic dryness until all of a sudden Jesus comes and like, just dumps water all over the whole scene. That's not really how the Bible describes the kingdom of Messiah. It describes the kingdom, rather, as beginning with a trickle and getting more and more and more powerful and full as it flows out into the world. This little mustard seed becomes a tree, this little stone becomes a mountain. This little trickle out from under the altar in God's temple becomes a rushing river that reaches to the ends of the earth. And that's what we're living in now. Some of the water already come. There's much that is still not yet. We're still people of hope, still people on the way. But all of what God has promised will be. As the word of God works in the world, as the spirit of God works in the world, we are going to see the salt marshes of... You, know, you look at your life. Think about the salt marshes of your life. Things that were dead once things that were just, they were not even spiritually functioning once. And, 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 and you, God is, is working to make your salt marshes fresh and out of people full of the water of God will flow fresh water, Jesus said to the world. That's what's going on. But now notice, as we're still on the way, still much that's not yet, still h- hoping for uh, so much, notice the response in verse three that God is looking for while it is still not yet. You know, you've heard, if, if I haven't said this, I'm sure you've heard someone say this. You know, it, when God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt and he was going to part the Red Sea, they sang and they danced, but they sang and they danced on the wrong side of the Red Sea. It was not really a great thing, it was not a great act of faith to sing and dance once God had parted the waters, destroyed Egypt, and got you safely to the other side. I mean, it's good that they sang and danced. That was time to celebrate. But what would have really been impressive is that they could have done the singing and dancing when they were still on the other side of the Red Sea waiting for God to act. If they'd had so much confidence in God, they could have been that full of joy in the Lord when it looked like they were gonna die at the hands of the Egyptians. And so while it is still not yet, what you'll notice, God wants to be the response to the promise of water is y'all need to strengthen your grip. You see that in verse three? You're, you're, this, is, this is how y'all are looking. You know, this is the look. Weak hands, wobbly knees. This is This is us. That's how we're thinking about the future so often. Weak-handed, shaky knees. Strengthen your weak hands. Get your hands on God's promises. Steady your weak knees. The writer of Hebrews picks up this very, very language in chapter 12, right after he said to his readers that God is disciplining you, and I don't want you to despise that. I don't want you to think that's because he's against you. It's, the Lord, it's those God loves that he disciplines, and then he says, therefore, lift your drooping hands. Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees, he says. Stir your confidence that all that is not yet is going to be, and why? Beloved, let's let's strengthen each other's hands right now. Everything that is still not yet, and believe me, it's not yet. You, you look around the world. So much that God has promised is not yet, yet it's going to be. How do we know that? On what basis can you have strong hands and get your knees underneath you about the fact that what is not yet will be. It's because of God. Like, that's it. It's not because we're awesome. It's not because, you know, we have so many resources. I mean, you know, God does bring resources and raise up people, but the reality is the confidence we have that what is going to be that is still not yet, what it is, yet it's going to be is because of God. And, and Isaiah says, look at your God now, all that that's not yet, it's going to come in his time. That's usually a problem for us. It's going to come in his way. That's very often a problem for us. It's hard to rest in God's way of doing things sometimes. But what is not yet, all that water, it will come. And he says, you need to look at your God. Don't look at your circumstances. Behold your God, verse 4, until your anxiety turns to energy. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Fear not, behold your God. Look at God until you can say from the heart, not just, you know, because your pastor said you should say these words, you know, but because it is true, this is not hopeless. This is not hopeless. God is not absent from these circumstances? God is not impotent, the arm of the Lord is not shortened that he cannot save, the ear of God is not dull that he doesn't hear your prayers, as Isaiah will say later in chapter 59, behold your God until all that anxiety, those knots in your gut, turn to energy, this is not hopeless. Well, that's a tall order, and it's why I love the fact that he says in verse 4, you need to steady each other. And this is the beauty of being the body of Christ. Say to those who have the anxious heart, maybe you're not the one with the anxious heart right now, but say to one another, brother, sister, behold your God. I know a lot of people would say, you know, I, Pastor, I don't really think I have the gift of encouragement. Well, I, have, I, have, I must say to you, you have, a, you have the duty of encouragement whether you have the gift or not. Like you, we all need to develop that gift. That is a command in the scriptures. Beware The writer of Hebrews says, lest there be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief. And how are we going to fight back against that? Exhort one another daily. You need to be in each other's ear, encouraging each other. Brother, sister, be strong. Fear not. In fact, sometimes you might find that the way to fuel your hope, when your hope is kind of getting shaky, is to go find someone else and strengthen their hope. And what you'll find is you come alongside each other and you say, you know, brother, sister... Uh, yeah, this is a mess. I'm looking at your life and I see a I salt marsh in some ways. You know, you are struggling with some horrible things. Maybe stuff stuff being, you know, done to you from the outside or maybe your own heart is betraying you and you're just battling with things inside and I feel, or maybe you're looking around at the society and, you know, the culture around you and you're just kind of anxious and afraid or whatever it might be. You come alongside each other and you point each other to God and you pray and you refresh yourself in what God has already done and what he's promised. And what you're going to find is, you know, you know what's happening? Water. Water, where there was a waste of anxiety, now there's the water of growing faith and hope and joy. But it's interesting, all of that, you know, the water, but it's not just waiting in hope for what is not yet. Because all that could be, yeah, you know, pastor, you know, sure. We, you know, we strengthen each other and we need to keep looking to the future and keep having hope and we wait for it and we have confidence in God and yes, 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 the water. But it's interesting too, you're not just waiting in hope you're also walking toward it. The writer of Hebrews says, not just lift up your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees. He goes on to say, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. And you'll notice there's not just the water here, there's the way. Water to come, water that is not yet, and that orients us to the not yet. But there's also the way in verse 8 when the kingdom of God comes and it's here what emerges as God begins to build his kingdom is what Isaiah calls here there's a highway so he's looking at the future when God's going to water the earth he's going to bring his kingdom and what he sees is a highway is going to be there God is going to establish an elevated way to walk in that time and, you know, you, you, of course, this literally happened after the exile. They, they, you know, came back on these roads back to the land of Israel, and God made a way back to the, the, you know, the Holy Land. But it's interesting in light of this that what does Jesus call himself? I am the what? I am the way. I'm the way. The kingdom of God does not come all at once. I, I I kind of wish in the first century Jesus had come and he had just like taken, you know, the whole thing in hand and just driven out all his enemies and done the whole thing in one, you know, fell swoop. That would have been it seems like that would have been a nice easy way to bring the kingdom. That is not how it comes. It does not come all at once. It doesn't come all at once in your life. What God does as he begins to rule and reign is he there's still even where we are now with all the growth we've experienced and what we've seen God do in the world, what we, what we, what's, there's still so much to journey toward. There's still a lot that is not yet, but God has made a way. He's established a highway through the not yet. And I want you to notice a few things about this way. So the kingdom is here. There's the way. It's not all not yet anymore, but it's a way. And by definition, a way is leading towards something, which means there's still a lot that's not yet. There's still destination, but there's a way now. And I'd like you to notice a couple of things about this way, what it's like to be on this way. It's a place of identity, security, and mobility. Look at verses eight and nine. Identity, security, and mobility. It's a place of identity. The followers of the way... Those who walk on this way, we're told in verse nine, they're the redeemed. Redeemed is a word that means God claimed you. You were gonna be sold as a slave. You were in bondage. You were helpless. And God came into the marketplace, as it were, and he paid the price so you could be his. That's what it means to be redeemed. That's your identity. God has claimed you. And he hasn't just claimed you. We're told the unclean, verse eight, do not pass over it. God didn't just purchase you with the price of his son's blood, but through that blood of his son, to change the word picture, he washed you. He cleansed you. You're, you're not, you're not, you still sin, but your identity is not sinner anymore. You're not filthy. You're not unwashed. You, you, God has cleansed you and he has put you on this highway and only those who've been washed in the blood of Jesus walk here. And God has put us on this path and we have this identity as redeemed and washed people but it's a place of security too because God keeps the people on this path we're told that even if they're fools in verse 8 they're not going to go astray God on this path keeps his people he keeps them he by the by his spirit, he, he just, you know, we, we'd still be like sheep going astray. And yet, God keeps us, and he keeps us from the folly of our own hearts. And he, you know, having washed us, he, he works in us to keep us on the path. But he doesn't just keep us from ourselves. We're told here that there's no lion, there's no ravenous beast. God has crushed what the Bible calls the evil one, the serpent, the destroyer. He has no power over the people on this path anymore. They have identity as God's redeemed people. They are secure from the destroyer and from their own straying. But it is a place, in light of all that, of mobility. The Apostle Paul says, having received Christ Jesus the Lord, so what? So now walk in him. This is who you are, redeemed of the Lord, washed in the blood of Jesus. You are secure. God has got the enemy on a leash he has crushed the serpent's head and he is able to keep you from your own stupidity that would you know, drive us off the path. This is who you are. Now walk, walk. There's something to do. That's what the writer of Hebrews means when he says, here's what you need to do in the world. Make straight paths for your feet. And I, 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 you heard me say this when we talked about this back in Hebrews last year. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame will not be turned out of the way but will be healed. This is what that means. You you make straight paths for your feet and then what is lame will eventually be healed. This is what it means. You are God's. God has bought you. His kingdom is your future. That's the not yet towards which you're moving. The fullness of God's kingdom, that's your future. You're now part of God's reality. He's not part of your reality. Right? This is not, you know, God being part of my best life. No, I'm now, I'm part of his reality. I'm part of what he's doing in the world. He's in my life, not to fulfill my purposes for me, but he's going to fulfill his purposes for me. That's who I am. And now what, 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 what the writer is saying when he says, now make straight paths for your feet, is that if that's true, I'm the Lord's, his kingdom is my future, then every single thing in my life now is taking its bearings off of that compass the needle of Ben Miller's entire life points towards Zion. And every single thing I'm doing in my life is getting its bearings off the fact that that's where my needle's pointing. That's my true north. I'm the Lord's, his kingdom will be mine forever. That's that's where the needle's pointing. What does it mean that what is lame will be healed in those straight paths? Just point your face straight toward God and his kingdom and walk. Every single step I take on those straight paths is going to bring more strength, more health, more life. We talked about this back in Hebrews. When I'm lame, I want to get off the path. You want to not be lame anymore? In this path, you keep walking. You stay with Jesus. You, get, you seek his kingdom more. You give, you give more of yourself to pursuing what God wants for you. You walk And more and more and more what you'll find is where there was lameness and pain and struggle and weakness, there'll be righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You keep walking toward God and his kingdom. John Calvin says this in the most breathtakingly beautiful way in his Institutes. Just listen, just let this sort of breathe. We are not our own. Let not our reason nor our will, therefore, sway our plans and deeds. We are not our own. Let us therefore not set it as our goal to seek what is expedient for us according to the flesh. We are not our own. Insofar as we can, let us therefore forget ourselves and all that is ours. Conversely, we are God's. (laughs) Let us therefore live for Him and die for Him. We are God's. Let His wisdom and will therefore rule all, all of our actions. We are God's. Let all the parts of our life accordingly strive toward him as our only lawful goal. are you with me that's that 's the walk i 'm the lord's his kingdom is my future, and so it 's all about him. John Webster has actually said this in a different way, kind of meditating on what calvin said, and just just listen to this this is this is this this is where we are very, very different from kind of the catechism. And the way of life in our culture today. He's, Webster says, in Christian experience, in Christian experience, as people on the way, we are denied the right claimed by the sinner to self possession and self actualization because we're possessed and made real by God. Let me read that again. In Christian existence, we're denied the right that is claimed by the sinner to self possession and self actualization. Because we're possessed and made real by God. More briefly, our condition is one that denies our desire to be God to ourselves because we've been created and recreated by the one true God. And then notice how he makes this transition. From this holy condition, you're on the way, arises the movement of holy living. From this holy condition, You are possessed and made real by God, not by yourself. Flows the movement of holy living. That's the walking. He says it's a flight from falsehood and a turning, a directing of ourselves toward the God in whom we are. This doesn't mean that the holy life spells the end of selfhood. That's often the fear. Well, if your life is all about God, then you've kind of forfeited your selfhood. It doesn't spell the end of selfhood, but rather the extraction of selfhood from the realm of wickedness and idolatry and rebellion. It's submission and subjection to God, which corresponds to the fact that the inflamed, proud, competent self, full of the jumble of desire and anxiety, which is the sinner's grief, has been killed at the cross, And so it can and must be abandoned. It's the submission and subjection to God that's the flip side of the coin, that that whole inflamed, proud, competent Ben Miller that was so full of this jumble of desire and anxiety, which is the sinner's grief, God killed that self at the cross. And it can be abandoned and it must be abandoned. Walk in the way. Well, what on earth does that look like? You know, our Father in his goodness, he doesn't just leave it in generalities. What's it mean to make straight paths for your feet? to walk in those straight paths so what is lame may be healed. Well, the writer of Hebrews nudges us on the way with some specific straight paths. I'm going to close with these, but these, it's important to get this kind of out of the realm of you're not your own into some specifics. And notice what the writer of Hebrews does. If you happen to have your Bible, you could just flip there, but don't, don't worry about it. I'm going to be brief. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Lift up your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, look at God, remember the water's coming all that is not yet will be because of God and make straight paths for your feet. God has put you on the path. You are his, you are secure and God is, wants you to be mobile on that path, walk toward God and his purposes. So what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. And then he gets very specific. I'll give you just a few quick, quick pointers. Number one, strive for peace with everyone. Strive for peace with everyone. One of the things I've noticed in my own life and as I look at God's people and I minister to them is that people who have hope in God tend to be very relationally resilient. It's not easy to be a peacemaker, to live at peace, to strive for peace with the people around you, with everyone around you. But when you have hope in God, it creates the resiliency to seek peace. People that have hope in God don't write people off. They just don't, like, cancel people, like, I'm done with you. They don't. People that have hope in God, that are making straight paths for their feet because they know that God is going to fulfill his promises, they're patient. They can wait for things. It doesn't all have to happen right now. That helps make peace. People that have hope in God, hope in God, because God's the one who makes salt marshes fresh, and God has promised that's what He's going to do. And as I'm walking on the way, I'm gonna see more and more salt marshes turning fresh. People have that hope, they're not controlling. So often what destroys relationships is kind of this controlling, manipulative, I gotta fix people and fix everything, you know, on my own time frame. People have hope in God that no God is working here. Sometimes the water comes slowly. They can leave things to God. And they can just kind of get busy doing sort of things that are within their circle to do and leave much of what's going on to God. And that's how you strive for peace. Not trying to fix everything. You can't, you can't strive for peace if you're trying to fix everything. And there's just a cheerfulness about hope. There's a kind of emotional elasticity, a sense of humor that, yeah, things are sometimes very difficult with people. I'm difficult, people around me are difficult, but I'm able to strive for peace because I'm not so wound up because I have hope. Strive for peace. It's very interesting that Paul in a, text that we all know but it's easy to kind of tune it out love he says love now listen to the description love bears all things believes all things hopes all things endures all things the writer of hebrews says you be careful no one fails to obtain god's grace and a root of bitterness springs up and by that root many are defiled hope in god straight paths for your feet Strive for peace and there's healing. Lameness begins to fall away and you get stronger as you lay hold of the grace of God. Strive for peace, that's one. Here's another, the writer of Hebrews goes on to say. Don't just strive for peace in your hope. Never sell out in your hope. Because he doesn't just say, make straight paths for your feet, strive for peace and strive for the holiness without which no one's gonna see the Lord never sell out. He goes on to elaborate, none of you be sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Hope in God. Strive for peace. It makes you relationally resilient. Never sell out. Never sell out. Do not sell your birthright for a bowl of stew. There are two big sins that God constantly warns his people about in the Old and New Testaments. One is idolatry. The other is immorality. They're both ways of selling out for a bowl of soup. There are so many counterfeit gods in your life and my life. Some of you have got these gods. They're right there before you even now. What do I mean by a counterfeit god? I mean, none of us is probably going to bow down to an idol somewhere. What do we even mean? Very simply, a counterfeit god is something in your life that starts to demand the love and the loyalty that are gods alone. And you've all got it, beloved. I do too. Every day. There are things that want your love that's due to God. Things that want your loyalty, want your attention, want your energies, want your time, want your resources in a way that really is really is God's alone. And you don't sell out to these things. Don't be an unholy person. You don't deviate and start giving your love and loyalty to something else that belongs to God. But probably more in our time, even more obviously not just counterfeit gods, but this idea of sexual immorality. Think of it just as instant gratifications. There are going to be things in our life every single day that are very pleasant to the eyes, very pleasurable to the body, and they'll make you important if you'll just do one thing. Pleasure to the eyes, pleasure to the body, and they'll make you important. All you got to do is one single thing just forget about that promised kingdom. That's all you got to do. And the money and the sex and the glitz and glamour of the world, don't be sexually immoral. (laughs) I heard something yesterday that really sobered me. A Christian young person Who thinks it's okay to be sexually immoral because God doesn't really care about that so much. There's sort of bigger fish to fry. Everyone's doing it now. What's the big deal? You see what's happened in something like that? Now God's God's on your terms. God will not ask of you that. And, and do we really, are we really in, in evangelical Christianity in the 21st century, are we actually at a place, beloved, where we think that God wouldn't ask that of me? I, I you know, I, I get to decide the parameters of obedience. I, I, I get to decide what God will require from me. Look, it's pleasant. It's pleasurable. It's easy. It builds your status. And, and the writer reminds us, straight paths for your feet. You strive for peace. Don't be unholy. Don't be sexually immoral. Don't go off into these instant gratifications and counterfeit gods, no matter how attractive that may be. You are the Lord's. Your body belongs to him. And hope in God just says no. Do you know how you get through temptations? Hope. You want to strengthen your children to fight against the temptation of sin? They need hope. They need to know God. They need to think about his kingdom, have their imagination nourished and expanded by the glories of all God has promised. They need to get ready to rule the world because that's what they're gonna do with Jesus. They need to get ready to judge angels because that's what they're gonna do with Jesus. They need to be training in that and, and be around people who love it and are into it and are excited about it. These, are, these people are cool and they're, they're alive and they have, they're, they, you know, they're not lame, literally not lame. They're, getting, they're strong, they're full of righteousness, peace and joy and, 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 and they begin to have hope and they can just say, no, I'm not selling out. That's some fine-looking soup. I'm not selling my birthright. Strive for peace. Never sell out. The last thing is in Isaiah, and I am done. The last thing's here in Isaiah. Don't just strive for peace. Don't just never sell out. At the end of our text, beloved, sing while you walk. Sing while you walk. They'll come to Zion with singing. That's important. The Apostle Paul says to the Romans in a really tough culture and a really tough time, Listen to how he prays. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. There's joy in hope. The psalmist says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you so anxious? Why are you so disquieted within me? What's he say next? Hope in God. I will yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Singing is protest. Joy is protest. Celebration is protest. Yes, dark times. Yes, challenges. Through many tribulations, we walk into the kingdom of God. We follow Jesus, after all. He was crucified. We follow Jesus. He was mocked. We follow Jesus. He was despised. We follow Jesus. He suffered. He, the, the, God turns up the fire to refine us. And we sing in protest against unbelief And the idea that evil will have the last word. I I love Psalm 27, 6. You know, Psalm 27, David's talking about some really tough times in his life. And he says, yes, I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Sing while you walk. Find ways to celebrate. Find ways to express joy. And you will find that something of the air of Zion you're already breathing. I'll close with this. Knowing the times. Christian hope, it's not grounded in possibility. When people in the world talk about hope, they're talking about wishful thinking. You know, I hope that'll happen. It's a possibility. Maybe that could be. Christian hope is not ever grounded in mere possibility. Christian hope is grounded in certainty because it's grounded in God. Everything God has said will be because of God. How do we know? He's given proof of everything He's promised. It's all going to be, he's given us proof of that in giving his son. The Apostle Paul says, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. He came, he lived, he died, he was raised, he ascended, he reigns. The water is here, the spirit is here. In him, all of God's promises for the future are yes and amen. That's the certainty. So for you as God's people, it is never, ever not. It is never not. It is only not yet. Not yet. Not yet. So give us your peace, Father. Give us joy and hope in believing. So we may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus we pray. Amen.